Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. As we open up God's word, the epistle of James, let's bow and ask for God's help. Lord God, teach me that I may teach them. Holy Spirit, sanctify and enable my mind and my mouth that I may deliver your word faithfully and fruitfully. Lord God, in this study of James about living faith, may my faith be the first faith to become more alive. May my life be the first one to be changed. And may your word change all of us who are one family in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Why we need the book of James. <clears throat> Give you this morning uh, three reasons why we need the book of James, and we'll sprinkle these texts from James throughout this sermon, but three reasons why we need the book of James. The first reason, it starts with the word subjects, and the reason is the subjects in James are all over each of our lives. The subjects in the book of James are all over each of our lives. Have you ever been in a class and the teacher was yakking on and on and on about a subject that you were very certain had nothing to do with not only your life, but anyone's life ever in the history of life? I was in class this week. Uh, I took a, a seminary class um, from Dr. Hans um, Borsma on... Um, on the patristic interpretation of scripture, basically like the guys that lived right after the guys in the book of Acts. So the pa pastors in the 100s, 200s, 300s, 400s, how they interpreted scripture. And one day uh, in class, class, class went from 9 a.m. till 4 p.m. and we had 45 minute break for lunch. And one day in class, he spent two or three hours talking about how the platonic categories of nominalism, realism, and essentialism enabled the church fathers to move from the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 to the Homoousion in the Council of Nicaea. And I suppose it's a benediction to his ability as a teacher that after a couple of hours, I, I had a small grasp of what he was talking about. I'm sure you've had that experience of being in class and thinking, what does this have to do with me? You will not have that experience in this study of the book of James. The subjects in the book of James are all over each one of our lives. James chapter one, verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Nobody can change the Bible. Nobody should change the Bible. But it has been well said that if we could change the Bible, we would change that word when to the word if. 
But it isn't if, it's when. We can't change it. Every single person faces trials. And facing trials is a subject in your life that you need serious help with. Apparently, the first people who received this, just like the people who will be receiving this in the year 2020 in this church, were facing various trials, facing various difficulties, facing various uncertainties, and they were not encountering those trials with the right kind of faith. Not that any of you have ever had a trial and you failed to encounter it with perfect overcoming faith. Not that any of you has ever even come close to that experience. James chapter one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. The subjects in the book of James are all about wisdom to navigate through life. Apparently, the people who received this epistle in the first year it was written, just like the people who will be receiving it in the year 2020, were lacking wisdom, and sometimes they were doubting that God could give them the wisdom that they needed for what was happening in their life. Sometimes they doubted that God could give them the wisdom that they needed for the difficulties in their life, not that any of you would ever for a half a second doubt that God could give you the wisdom for the difficulties that you face in your life. Beginning to see how these subjects are so remote and have nothing to do with people like us. Continue, look at James chapter one, verses nine and 10. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Later in chapter two, he's gonna talk even about how the, the church was giving the good seats to the rich people and making the poor sit on the floor. So there were poor people who were being mistreated and there were wealthy people who were doing the wrong thing, money. Social and economic classes were too big of a deal. Huh. Not that anybody in a fairly wealthy suburban church like ours would ever adopt a worldly attitude about social distinctions or money. You see how these subjects hit home. Look at chapter one, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Let me just apologize up front that as we progress through the book of James, we're going to find weird, obscure, impractical verses like this. That when we read them, we're like, what is that talking about? What does that have to do with anything? We're going to find all sorts of verses like this that when you read them, I mean, I just apologize because it's going to take me three hours to unpack how it could possibly in any way relate to people like us because these subjects are going to be so irrelevant because, you know, how many years have I been pastoring this church? And I'm happy to tell you, I've never run into an unteachable person nor have I ever run into a church member who talks too much, nor have I ever encountered a church member here who was ever angry about anything. So it's probably got very little to do with our lives. James chapter one, verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving 
yourselves. It's going to go on in chapter 2 to say faith without works is dead. So apparently, they thought knowing the truth was enough. They didn't have to actually do the truth. Apparently, they thought attending church was enough. Owning a Bible was enough. Hearing it was enough. But the hearing never actually got through the ears and into the hands that reach in the pocket for money. The hearing never got through the ears and into the mouth that speaks words of peace and love. The subjects in this book are all over all of our lives. The epistle of James, in a way, it almost assumes the gospel and then starts pounding it into the pavement of our lives. Apparently, this was a church where the truth of the gospel had been preached, a church where there had been solid Bible teaching, but that teaching wasn't making its way into the living, in speech, in conduct, in money, in relationships. The bottom line was their faith wasn't operating in their lives. And James was exhorting them to have a living faith. Faith should live in the way they handle trials, in the way they handle money, in the way they talk, in the way they treat each other. So the subjects in the book of James are all over each one of our lives. And in that short introduction to the subjects of James, all I did was pick a couple of verses from the first chapter. Let me tell you, two, three, four, and five get more up in your kitchen than one does. This is going to get deep into our lives. But that's the first reason, because the subjects in James are all over each of our lives. The second reason is style. The style of James will get right through to each of us. The style of James will get right through to each one of us. I love the style in which the book of James is written. It's actually, it's actually a challenge to me um, to become a better preacher and a better pastor. It's part of the reason I took that seminary class this week. I, 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 I never, I never want to settle. I always want to stay nimble and I always want to receive a challenge to love Jesus more and to be more effective in calling others to love Jesus more. And James challenges me in this area because in his teaching, he cuts to the bottom line without messing around. He is not really interested in sounding good. He is really interested in getting through. He's not really interested in hearing about your profession of faith. He's not even really interested in hearing about your faith. What he wants is to see your faith. He wants to see it. He wants to see faith in your practices. Several writers refer to James as the least theological of all of the epistles in the New Testament, or the least doctrinal of all the epistles in the New Testament. It's not that James discounts doctrine and says doctrine is unimportant, but it is the case that James doesn't want to talk about doctrine. James wants to see the doctrine lived out in the way of, of our life. For James, talk is cheap, and James wants to see results. If you want to understand the book of James, I'll give you two numbers, 54 and 108. Let's start with that second number, 108. 108 is the number of verses in the book of James, 108 verses. 54 
is the number of verses that contain imperative commands. 54 of them. It has the highest ratio of imperative commands of any book in the Bible. James is not philosophizing about the undergirding reasons behind everything. James wants to see the things themselves. James is looking for the fruit. He, there are lots of places in the Bible that dig into the doctrinal roots. And James may do that, apparently, even though it seems he doesn't, he does, and we'll see that as we go along. But James wants to see the fruit. He wants to see the seed burst into life. He wants to see not what is spoken, but what is shown. Not what is substrata, but what is right there on the surface of your life. So James' style is persistently practical. James is intensely interested in action. James' purpose as a preacher is not to pontificate or to philosophize or to merely inform the mind or to merely keep his audience happy. His purpose as a preacher is to shove his audience in a different direction. He wants to push, he wants to pull, he wants to influence, he wants to prod. James reads to me like a preacher, not like a writer, not like a professor. James is capable of hollering at us when we need hollered at. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 20. 220. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James is hollering at the people that he's teaching. Look at how he does it in, in uh, James chapter 4, verses 3. 13 and 14. If you, if you see James chapter 4, verse 13, the first two words, at least in the ESV translation, is come now. I think a proper translation of that is, come on now. James is saying, come on now. You're out there saying that today or tomorrow you're going to do this and that, and you already have plans for seeing the Super Bowl and doing this and doing that. You're going to spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Then he says, verse 14, hey, don't you even know that you don't know anything? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. I don't, I don't think that little book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, was on James' shelf. <laughs> like the best thing he could say to you is, you know what? Your life is like a vapor and it's gone. Like, oh, Okay. James is so realistic. And man, does he confront us. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. 5 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth eaten, and your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh up like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your field, which you've kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is not one of those pastors who tiptoes around because he doesn't want the rich people to leave his church or get mad at him. 
James is not one of those pastors who wears a pastel sweater vest and gets rid of the pulpit and just sits on a stool and just does group therapy with everyone so that they'll like him and stay around and keep giving in the offering. James says, I love everybody in my church, but I am not beholden to a single one of them. And if faithfulness to God means that they hate me and leave, goodbye, I will be faithful to God. This is the way he pastors. This is the way he preaches. He is so utterly realistic and he's so fearless. And when he, when he gives us practical ways of living, he, he doesn't even say like, now this will be easy, just give it a try. He rarely gives us three easy techniques. He keeps saying it's a struggle, it's a climb, it's a fight, and your fingers are gonna have to grip to that rock every place that you climb this mountain that we call life. James always preaches for a personal verdict. James always preaches for a personal response, purely theoretical discussions about the Christian faith. I heard somebody say it like this. Purely theoretical discussions about the Christian faith are false to the actual nature of the Christian faith. And I think that might be true. Purely theoretical discussions about the Christian faith are false to the actual nature of the Christian faith. For the Christian faith springs from the life of Christ. Theology, you heard this definition of theology, I'm sure James would agree with it. Theology is the science of living blessedly, both now and forever. That would be James' definition of theology. Theology is the science of living blessedly both now and forever. And so, of course, this comes through in the way James teaches us about living faith. Faith has to be more than bare belief in the known facts. This is his his demonic faith in James chapter 2. Faith is is experienced in applicatory assurance when it when it is actually moving is where we experience the assurance of faith faith involves the conscience examining itself in god's presence <clears throat> and the life considering itself in the light of god's revelation so the response that god calls for is always a personal one god the living god <clears throat> calls for a personal response your relationship with God is shown in your personal responsiveness to what God has said and what God has done. Living faith is obedience to the God who commands. Living faith is faithfulness to the God who has made his will revealed and plain. Living faith is a repentant return to the God who warns about our destruction. Living faith is hope in the God who holds our future. So it is very true that the style of James will get right through to each one of us. And then third, let's talk about the substance or the theme the substance or the theme of James, the substance or the theme of James will change each one of us. The substance of James will change each one of us for the substance or the theme of James is this, living faith. 
living faith. What is living faith? Living faith is faith that lives what it believes. Living faith lives out what it has faith in. You can say that you have faith in God. You can say that you have faith in the gospel. Living faith lives out what it says that it has faith in. For James, saying one thing and doing that one thing is living faith. But for James, saying one thing and then doing another is false faith or dead faith. But saying one thing and doing that thing is true faith. This is the reality of what James is trying to teach us about living faith. I said maybe that James is not deeply doctrinal or it's maybe one of the least doctrinal of the epistles. It's certainly not philosophical and, and kind of substrata categories. It's very on the surface. But there is one, at least one big truth in the book of James about God. And that is God is one. He says that in James chapter one, verse 17. See, James 1, 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We'll talk when we get to that verse about the impass impassibility of the eternal God that he is without change. God is one. And look also at James chapter two, verse 19. James chapter two, verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is, this is uh, by this time, it should make a smile. That even when James is teaching theology proper, when James is teaching theology proper about the nature and character of God, James 2.19, when he's teaching theology proper, it comes out as a tirade in which he's calling his listeners demonic. This is how he teaches theology because this is the kind of dude he is. But it says there, you believe that God is one. You do well, even the demons believe and shudder. The main characteristic of God is that God is one. James' main emphasis about God is that God is one. So watch. James' main emphasis about godly people is that their life is one. They live a life of integrity. They don't say that God is important and then show by their money that they have no thought about God. They don't say that God is important and then prove by their speech that they have no regard for God. God is one, and the godly person is one. The main characteristic of the godly person, according to James, is that he or she is one, not divided. That's why being divided, his, the Greek phrase is di-sukos, two-souled. Di meaning two, sukos meaning sold. The, the main characteristic of the ungodly person is that they are di-sukos, they are two-souled. Look at that in 117, James chapter 1, verse 17. You remember this verse? Every good and perfect gift. <clears throat> oh, I'm sorry, not 117. Look at 18. Uh, it says in 17, that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord, verse 8, because he is a double minded man, a two souled person, unstable 
in all of his ways. And then look ahead at James 4, verses 4 and 8. We'll see the same phrase. James 4, in verse 4, you see, the, you see how he's calling us to be one in James 4, 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's saying God is one and you have to be wholehearted in your allegiance to God. You can't be half for the world and half for God. But then we'll have the same word of, of two-souled or uh, one heart in James 4 and verse 8. James 4 and verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, you two-souled. What it means to repent of your sin is it means that you are no longer double-minded. You're no longer two-souled. You're no longer hypocritical. Living faith is the whole person loving God. False faith is to be double-minded. To be double-minded, he says in chapter 1, the double-minded man is like a wave. Well, what's a wave like? I suppose waves are desirable if you're a surfer or if you're a sound engineer. But the wave has no solidity. The wave is inconstant. The wave is always in motion. It is unreliable. It doesn't stay still. But the single-souled solidity of the godly woman and the godly man is what we're after. Where our desires and our actions are one. We live the way we want to live. Where our confession of faith and our conduct in faith is one. We live what we say we believe. Where our intention to glorify God and the fruition of our life is the glory of God. May all my powers in all their might for thy great purposes unite. The oneness of God means that those who are godly have a oneness, an integrity, a consistency in their life. This is, this is what it takes. Living faith, living faith is obedience to the God who commands. Living faith is faithfulness to the God who has made his will clearly revealed. Living faith is a repentant return to the God who warns us and even the God who woos us in the gospel. And living faith is hope in the God who holds the future. This is the substance of the book of James. And let me, let me take a moment to say that this grand message about living out the faith is, um, I'm, I'm actually fearful. I'm actually phobic as a minister of the gospel in a way that some, that one of you right now will hear this message as the church hollering at you to change your life so that God will love you and you'll be saved. This is called works and this is called bad news. The good news of the gospel 
is that the cross, which, of which we sang in almost every song, it's interesting, isn't it, that when Darren, or I'm sorry, when Brennan picks songs about joy, they all have to include the cross. The good news of the gospel is that the cross is not what God finally did after we obeyed him enough. The cross is the foundation. The cross is the starting point. And so now we live an obedient life from the love of God, not for earning the love of God. Remember that. Remember that in our reliance upon Jesus. Jesus demonstrated a living faith because the Lord Jesus was the one and only who was obedient to the God who commanded, who was faithful to the God who made his will plain. Jesus is the one who placed all of his hope in God who holds the future. So the substance of this book is that we have a living faith. And so I want to warn you about this study, and then I want to uh, welcome you and invite you. First, a word of warning about practical Bible teaching. This is, this is, uh, this is uh, something that I have finally figured out after being a pastor here for a couple of decades is this. I, this may sting a little bit, but I say it out of love. I finally figured out that when people ask for practical teaching, at least six or seven times out of ten, what they're asking for is teaching that will help them go in the way that they've already decided to go. That's what they mean by practical. <laughs> Practical teaching means uh, an easy continuance in the way that I already want to live my life. There's a huge difference between practical and easy. There's a huge difference between practical teaching and uh, agreeable teaching or copacetic teaching. Just the fact is that sometimes the teaching that is the most practical is initially the most disagreeable. After all, like when I was ordained to gospel ministry, the, the ordination that was placed upon me was not an ordination that said, you know, in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit, every time you encounter anyone, just encourage them to keep going in the way that they're going. That was not my ordination to ministry. I was ordained to wear an orange vest and wave a huge flag and say, you have to turn around. My warning is, don't, don't ask for practical teaching unless you are ready to be disagreed with. Don't ask for practical teaching if you really only want advice that will match up with your preconceived attitudes. That's the warning. But second, let me give you a welcome and an invitation. And this is just, um, this is just an invitation uh, to your imagination. I, I hope this isn't weird. I, I want to read a verse here, and I'm not going to interpret it. I just want to simply ask you, in the presence of the Holy Spirit, to imagine, imagine what this would look like. James chapter 3 
verse 17. James chapter 3, verse 17. Imagine all the people in the row that you're in, the people in the rows in front of you, the people in the rows behind you. Imagine what it would look like, what it would sound like, what it would be like if everybody here did this. 317, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. What if everybody in this city, when he encountered a member of Racine Bible Church, encountered somebody who was wise and pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason and full of mercy and full of good fruits and impartial and sincere. Wow. What would it look like? What would, what would be the draw to, to, to eternal life and fruitful evangelism in a church that lives like that? wow, that's what we want. That's what we want. What if the world around us saw that actual problems are actually solved in the local church? What if the world around us saw that the least who are loveless received everything and perfect love in the local church? That's the true shining of the gospel in life. This is the true shining of the gospel in real life. I told you that last week I was out of the office all week in this seminary course the, on the um, patristic Bible interpretation, how the, how the guys in the 100s and 200s and 300s and 400s interpreted the Bible. Well, our professor uh, speaks fluently at least Dutch, I think French and English. And when he would be, he'd be up front reading us something from, uh, say, the church father Irenaeus, who wrote in Greek. And so he would just read it from the Greek and, like, translate it to us. But sometimes he would have a perfectly translated word in the Dutch, which I guess was his heart language, and then he'd have to find one in the English. Then he did the same thing when he read to us from Augustine, who, because he wrote a little bit later, wrote in Latin. He would read it straight from the Latin and then translate it to us. It was like, what's going on here? But it reminded me, it reminded me of the seminary uh, of a a pastor who was in seminary and they were all talking and the question was, what's your favorite translation of the Bible? And this pastor who was a student in the seminary said, my favorite translation of the Bible is my mother's. And the other student said, well, what language did your mother speak and what language did she translate the Bible into? And he said, no, 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 <laughs> not a language. He said, he said, every day, every day, for a few minutes, my mom would read to me from the Bible. But every day, hour after hour after hour in her presence, my mother translated the Bible into life in our home, in our neighborhood, in our city. You know, that's what we're after. 
Church, that is our calling. That, that is the essence of living faith. May God, in his glorious mercy, give us this in the year 2020. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we receive this, the food that your word gives to us. And Heavenly Father, we ask now that we would take it in and that it would get deep within us. Heavenly Father, we once again confess that we have been double-minded, we have doubted, we have sought for joy in illicit places. We confess, we repent, and oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make us single-souled, unite our hearts to walk in the light as you are in the light, to be one, even as God is one. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.